we come to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 35 this morning. And we do so looking at, as we have, these different heroes of the faith. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of downtrodden and, and broken and suffering believers who, wherever they went, whether it was at work or in uh, society or even within their family, were experiencing all kinds of trials and tribulations, and they were being knocked down and beaten down for one particular reason. It wasn't their political views. It wasn't who they rooted for uh, in their sports arena. It wasn't who they hung out with, if you will, whether they were the in crowd or the out crowd. The reason why this group experienced so much suffering in those days was because they had become followers of Jesus Christ. And many, whether old or young, whether they had been believers for a long time or not, the running idea was, was to give it up. That it was too hard and too difficult and too trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And they looked at their neighbors and their friends and their family members who weren't followers of Christ. And life went pretty well for them. If you've been a Christian for some time, at some point when life has thrown you uh, some real difficult moments, if you're like me, you begin to pause and say, is it really worth it? Is it really worth being obedient? Is it really worth saying no to self and no to the pleasures and pursuits of this world to follow this Jesus that, that when I do, I get beat up by the devil. When I do, I get bombarded by the world and all of its devices and all of its declarations. When I follow Jesus, it seems life gets harder. And some of us, maybe this morning, after a very, very difficult week, have walked into church, and we're not sure we're coming back again. We have suffered too much, we're struggling too much, and we're asking the question, is it really worth it? This is the context of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is a reminder by looking at some of the greatest stories ever told of real life men and women. Some who had experienced awesome victories, reminding the people who were suffering that suffering isn't the only thing that happens to believers, but we can experience through the blood of Jesus Christ incredible victory, and we learned that last week. We learned the victories of, of men and women who, who were able to quench the fire and see their children resurrected from the dead and, and see foreign armies taken to flight and all of these awesome awesome victories. But today we come to a passage that in many ways reminds us that as followers of Jesus Christ, just because we say, I will, as we sang this morning to Jesus, that things won't always go well for us. You can watch a lot of TV preachers who will tell you by following Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy. I want you to know that they take out and cut out large portions of Scripture to make that doctrine work. In fact, they would never touch this passage of Scripture. Because this passage of Scripture is going to say that what they are preaching is a heresy and it's a cancer to our souls. Because what our Scripture is going to share with us today is that it's not always victorious as the life of a believer. And sometimes life as a believer is hard. 
And sometimes life as a believer is going to be difficult. And sometimes life as a believer, it's going to hurt. And sometimes you're going to experience things that no other person around you will experience only because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This morning, our passage is going to fight against our, our, our pursuit of comfort. And by the Holy Spirit's power, as we look at this scripture, we are going to be thrust into not pursuing our comfort, but our Christ-likeness. Because that's what God really wants out of us. God never promised a life of comfort. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, and it is true for us today, in this world you will find trouble. He didn't say in this world as you follow me, you'll find comfort. But he tells us in this world you will find trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And so what God doesn't do is he doesn't because he's overcome the world. He doesn't take us out of our suffering. But as he did with those Hebrew boys in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he enters into our suffering and he makes his presence known so we can shine brightly in a world of darkness. And so this morning we look at what I believe is one of the most heartbreaking passages of all the New Testament. And there is nothing pretty. There is nothing glamorous. There is nothing positive about the passage that I'm going to read. So let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verses 35, and we're going to go through 38. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. We learned the last part. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That was the end of last week's passage. But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? The word of God. This is the word of God and we, this is our spiritual food for the morning. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we come to a very, very difficult, hard passage. But Lord, I'm thankful for a church that's committed to preach the hard stuff. I'm thankful for a group of people that are, are willing to listen to the difficult passages. The ones that fight the very human nature of comfort so that we might, by your grace and by your mercy, become more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray as we read and as we learn that we might take truths from this passage, that we may emulate the example of their dedication and might live it out in a land of the free. Lord, I pray that we might show this kind of faith. 
We thank you for their example. We thank you uh, for your commendation on them. And we look forward, as we are obedient to you, that you will one day, as you said of them, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. So we give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a competitive guy, there is a part of me that always wants to be known as the greatest or the best. And maybe you're like that as well. Uh, whatever I get into, even if it's the smallest of games or activities, uh, I strive and I want uh, to be number one. I want to be on the top. Now, that doesn't mean I'll cheat or, or, or do something wrong. It's just the competitive nature in me. But there are times when I know that I'm not the best. That was proven last Sunday at Trivia Nights. Okay? My team had great hopes that I would move them to wonderful trophies of trivia, only to find out I was not the best. In fact, we eked out second to last place. Not very good. But there are times where you have to own up and say, you're not the greatest, you're not the best. I remember feeling this way when I picked up a book and began reading it. It was a book entitled The Greatest Generation by NBC newscaster Tom Brokaw. And it was written chronicling the stories of lives that were lived during what has now been coined The Greatest Generation. You see, the generation that was born between 1910 and 1924 has been given this title, while all other generations, both before it and after it, have been kind of just these ambiguous names. You think now millennials, Generation X, baby boomers, busters, all of these different things. No one has a catchy title No one has a title of such grandeur than that group of individuals who was born between 1910 and 1924. The greatest generation. Now what made this group the greatest generation? Brokaw says that uh, the reason why this generation was so great is that they had learned to persevere. A couple quotes that he has in uh, the book that I want to bring to you. The World War II generation, that's the greatest generation. Their perseverance through difficult times is a testament to their extraordinary character. Their remarkable actions during times of war and peace ultimately made the United States a better place in which to live. They were born and raised in a tumultuous era marked by war and economic depression. These men and women develop values of personal responsibility, duty, honor, and faith. He goes on, he says, these characteristics help them to defeat Hitler, to build an an American economy, make advances in science, and implement visionary programs. At every stage of their lives, they were a part of a historic challenge and achievements of a magnitude that the world has never before witnessed. Let's stop there for a second. Don't move on. That's an amazing statement. At every stage of their lives, they were a part of historic challenges and achievements of a magnitude the world had never witnessed and if you have questions about that look at the inventions that took place during that time look at got what got accomplished listen we go on vacations to see what these people built have you thought about that that's what we invest our time in things that take your breath away these men and women built 
because they had a vision for the future. Notice, go on. They have given the succeeding generations the opportunity to accumulate great economic wealth. One economist said, by the way, that you and I are still experiencing the net effect of the greatest generation's impact on our economy. We're in the houses we're in. We're in the cars that we drive. We experience the life that we do. None of that was around prior to them. And each of the succeeding generations have experienced prosperity because of them. He goes on and he says, we had the opportunity to accumulate great economic wealth, political muscle, and the freedom from foreign oppression to make whatever choices they like. What an amazing group of people. Now, now notice something else about them. Go ahead and flip the slide. It is a generation that by and large made no demands on homage from those who followed and prospered economically, politically, and culturally because of its sacrifices. You would have thought that this group would have gotten a big head. You would have thought that this group would have said, listen, we're the best of the best. But it is said that Some of our generations are the ones that think we have done so well. We are the ones that have affected so much change. And in fact, it is through their sacrifices. And they say, listen, we don't need to be, we don't need to be known. We don't need to be named. We'll let what we've done speak. Finally, Tom Brokaw says at the end of the book, it is, I believe, the greatest generation any society has ever produced. In fact, FDR said of his generation that his generation had a rendezvous with destiny. Now why in the world would I talk about a group of people with such affection? Well, they did the hard stuff and they were faithful when it mattered most, when their back was against the wall. But I want to share with you another generation, a generation that America didn't produce, but God did. A generation who was known for their perseverance and their endurance, who was known that when their back was against the wall, they shined like the noonday sun. This generation did not pursue notoriety. In fact, in our text today, when we read of this generation, there's not a single name given. They're nameless individuals. They are, in fact, the unknown soldiers of the Christian faith. And it is our great joy to see that God produced this greatest generation. Well, what can we learn about this great generation? What can we learn about these individuals who gave up their lives for the cause of Christ and his kingdom? I want to show you three things this morning. Number one, I want us to remember the titans. Remember the titans of biblical history. When we come to a text like this, and I'm just going to be very honest with you, I look at a text like this when I start studying, and there's sheer panic in my heart. How do you write a sermon for this? 
We're not given a person to rally around. We're not given a a key word or a key text to be able to camp on and, and understand. We're not given anything real positive, so it's nothing that will lift our spirit. So what in the world do we do? Well, number one, as we read this text, we remember what these people did. This passage should cause us to sit back and take it all in. As followers of Jesus Christ in a land full of freedom, in a land full of opportunity, we should stop and recognize that that's not the case for every generation, and it was not the case for these people. These people stood tall amidst the worst of circumstances. A couple things that I want you to recognize this morning. Number one, as we remember the Titans, let us recognize how easy you and I have it as followers of Christ here in America in the 21st century. We have got it easy. None of these things, and I thought long and hard, none of these things have ever happened to any of my people here at Village Bible Church in my almost 15 years of of vocational ministry here, nor do I know of ever reading in in a magazine or in a newspaper or watching on a newscast that any person living here in America for as long as I have been on this earth has ever experienced the things that are written in this text. So this text, in some ways, is incredibly foreign to us. Now, is this happening in other places of the world? You betcha. And we need to be praying, and we need to be seeking, and we need to be uh, doing all we can to alleviate this type of persecution in the world. But here in America, it is absent from our lives. Which begs the question, why then, in a life that is filled with such ease and such opportunity, are we not more outspoken about the cause of Christ? If we don't have to worry about being tortured, if we don't have to be worried about being sawn in half, then what keeps us from being bold and confident with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh, I know. We'll be laughed at. I know. We won't get invited to the cool kid parties or the cool uh, uh, neighborhood parties that we all want to be a part of. Yeah, first world problems, right? And this is a reminder to us, it should kick us in the pants that people had it way more difficult than we did and they were still incredibly confident and faithful to do the cause of Christ in their life each and every day. Which comes back to us, why can't we? What's holding us back? What's holding us down? The devil has got us so distracted. The devil has us so fearful. We walk around with a loser's limp even though we are victorious in Christ Jesus. This text should bring a complete guilt trip to every one of us, including the one preaching it to you. We're not doing enough. And we've got it so easy. Number two, I want you to recognize, as I said earlier, we have no names. There are no names. This enshrinement that's taking place at the end of this hall of faith, there are no names given. 
Now we could take the different things that are shared, all of them ugly, and we can put different prophets and different patriarchs into them. Because the life of faith in the Old Testament times was a time filled with great suffering. But we do get some clues to some of the stories that are going on in the text. First of all, one of the exceptions to the descriptions that are given is the phrase sawn in two. Nowhere in the Old Testament, in the biblical narrative, do we see anybody experience that. Now they experience a lot of other things that are written in the text. They experience torture. They experience not being given up for release. They experience mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. That, that was seen. They were killed by the sword. We know many of the prophets went about in skins of sheep and goats. We know many were destitute and afflicted and mistreated. But the sawn in two, that's a new one. Tradition tells us, and in Old Testament history of the Jewish people, in in the writing that was entitled, The Martyrdom of the Prophet Isaiah, this story is told. King Manasseh, who was a wicked and evil king, was said to have taken the prophet Isaiah, the author of the book of Isaiah, tired of him preaching God's kingdom and preaching repentance to the nation and the people of Israel, took Isaiah and before a group of people cut him into pieces. Of which the martyrdom of Isaiah recounts this terrible ordeal saying, Isaiah neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spoke with the Holy Spirit until he was sawn in two. Now, I don't know if that's the case. It's a reputable, historical, um, ancient writing. But nonetheless, we know that the Bible says it happened somewhere in some place to someone and that individual was found faithful in speaking of being tortured not accepting release we go to what is called an apocryphal book a book that was written uh, by jewish historians between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, these books are not in what we call our canon of Scripture. They're not bad books by any stretch of the imagination. They are books that we can glean incredible history from. In fact, uh, in the book of First and Second Maccabees is where the Jewish people experience a great victory against the Roman Empire. And because of that, they celebrate by having these knights where candles are lit. We know that tradition or that celebration to be called Hanukkah. And in the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 6 and 7, we are told of a faithful woman, an older woman, who the authorities told that she must defile her God by pursuing food sacrificed to idols of foreign gods and to denounce her God and worship other entities and she said no though she would have been released she said no and in that it says that they ushered in seven of her sons 
And she watched seven of her sons be tortured and killed instead of defiling her God in heaven. She remained faithful amidst huge costs. A story is also told of not being uh, released and being tortured by a man uh, in uh, the book of Second Maccabees as well named Eleazar. And Eleazar stood before the reign and terror of a wicked man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who uh, brought forth the abomination that causes desolation. He took a, a swine and sacrificed and, and offered up to the gods of, of this world in worship in the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. And he defiled the temple and its worship. And he went after all kinds of people. And he pursues uh, Eleazar. And Eleazar in the book of Second Maccabees tells us that when he was being put to death after being tortured, he uttered these words to the very men who were killing him. He said this, I might for the present avoid man's punishment, but alive or dead, I shall never escape the hand of the Almighty. You can do what you will with me. And if I am not faithful, I may live another day. But I may escape your hand, but I will never escape the hand of Almighty God. So kill away. I've got a better home coming. You see, these stories are stories we should tell. Christians are, and I, and I get it, and we're working off of it as a sermon title. We are enamored, listen, we are enamored by made-up people with made-up powers. The superheroes that we should be pursuing, the superheroes that we should be um, commending are these nameless men and women who admits incredible struggle stood tall when the going got tough. And God says, God says, not the million of, of mindless individuals like us who watch these things on our movie screens, God says the world was not worthy of them. What God is saying is what I created, the world I created that said it was good after each day of creation. He says it wasn't good enough for these people. They were so great. They are so awesome. They are to be commended. They are the greatest generation. Well, what did they do? There are three things that they did. We know. Number one, they stood up against sin and spoke up against it. They spoke up against sin. We know that in, included in this group are some of the prophets, some of them probably the minor prophets that we don't know about as much. And we know prophet upon prophet stood up, probably with their knees uh, waving and buckling and shaking. And they stood and they said, Thus saith the Lord. And they knew going before kings and rulers and all those in authority that when they stood and said what they did, they knew the response of the people. They're going to kill me. But they cleared their throat and they spoke words that the world would say, you should die for such things. 
You say today that that doesn't happen very much. I want you to know, and I don't mean anything. I know we joke about Cubs and all of that, but the Cubs just uh, brought on a new uh, player, Daniel Murphy from the Washington Nationals. Daniel Murphy, since the All-Star break, is the best hitter in the National League. You would think that Sports Talk Radio would have loved bringing on this guy. This guy, it, what an opportunity. The Cubs got him for absolutely nothing. And you know what the whole day of Sports Talk Radio was? That this devout Christian man had spoken against homosexuality. And they were picketing that he should have never been brought on to the Cubs. Because any person like that should be anathema from any profession, including baseball. The first seven questions of his press conference had to do with how obstinate and bigoted and hateful this man was. And if you look at what he says, he speaks words of love, but he says, listen, I don't agree, and God's word doesn't agree with this as a lifestyle. And he does it with respect, he does it with honesty, he does it with clarity, and the world hates him for it. And you listen to some of the call-ins that had happened, and they wanted some of the things that happened to the, the people in this text to happen to Daniel Murphy. And you know what? The host loved it. We have to speak up against sin. We need to do so with grace. We need to do so with mercy. We need to do so with hope. We need to do so with love in our hearts. We don't need to be jerks about it, but we need to speak up against sin. And, and many times, we back away when we should be declaring why we live the way we do and why others, we need to be telling others that when they pursue such things, they are out of God's blessing and out of God's favor when he has invited us to live according to his will and his word. They stood up and spoke up against sin. Number two, they stood up for what is right. At some point, at some situation, they knew that this was an important time, an important situation. And instead of backing up and, and being hidden behind curtains, instead of backing up and being hidden amongst masses, they took a step forward and they stood tall and they stood proud and they stood for the glory of God and they announced to the world, what you are doing is wrong. They lived out what Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 tells us. Stand up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You see, God has called us to be advocates to those in need, have needs around us. Some of the most vicious responses that Jesus would get from the religious establishment was when he went in between someone who was needy or destitute and the powerful and they hated Jesus for that and they'll hate us for that and that's why we need to stand up and speak up for the unborn no one else will do it and the world will hate us for it and the world will tell us that that we are not uh, loving women or caring for women but we need to stand up for the unborn we need to stand up for the needy. We need to stand up for the marginalized. We need to stand up for the alien, for the poor. 
We as Christians are called to serve them and protect them, even if it means we have to suffer unbelievable pain. Write that down. Do we have to suffer? They did. They did what was right. And what did it get them? Pain and sorrow. Our text refutes the health and wealth heresy, as I shared earlier. It shows us the fierce opposition that the devil has. Listen, the devil wants you dead. He wants you dead. And if you think he's a a guy in red pajamas with a pitchfork, some Halloween little gag, you are wrong. The Bible says he is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And he has got this church in his sights, and he's got the elders in his sights, and he's got any man, woman, or child who will make the cause of Christ their goal, their focus, and you will experience the hottest fires of hell when you stand for what is right. When you do the will of God, the devil will do everything in his power to stop you. You've got to know that, and you've got to understand that, and you've got to be ready for it. This is what Jesus told us. Jesus told us we would experience these types of things, this rejection, ill-treatment, injustice, torture, and death. We'll do so for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to fast forward just a moment to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. And notice what the writer says. Now remember, he's, this is just one big thought. He's turned our attention from these people that have been tortured and, and, and us who are suffering such horrific hardships. And he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So as bad as we may have it, Jesus had it worse because Jesus shed his blood not for his sins, but for the sins of all kinds of men and women. And we need to take heart that the one who saved us, the one who loves us, the one who has taken care of us and will take care of us, the one who will never leave us or forsake us, is the one himself who endured such incredible hardship for our sake. Remember that Jesus calls us to this when he says that we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross, a symbol of pain and torture and eventual death. And he says, I want you to do this daily. This is what Christianity is. This is what we're called to. And so we remember the Titans and we remember what they did. But then the second thing we need to do, and these second and third points move very quickly, we need to resist the temptation to give up. We read a passage like this and say, and we put ourselves in the situation and say, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I want to do it. Those are honest answers. And the human condition is prone to push off suffering, to seek to avoid it. But when do these temptations become hottest? I want you to know the temptation is greatest when life is hard and when life hurts. So maybe you find yourself in a hard season of your life, in a hurting season of your life, 
And the great temptation that you have, and the great temptation I have, is to throw up our hands and say, enough's enough. I'm tapping out. I'm done. Recently, I was with some friends, and I had never done this before, but we came upon uh, mixed martial arts, MMA fighting, and these two guys that seem a whole lot smarter than beating themselves up, okay, get into a ring, and they grapple, and they kick, and they punch, and they wrestle, and they beat each other. One guy, man, just bloody mess. And in the midst of the fight... One of the guys said, I'm done. And he tapped out. And it happened so quick, and the fight was over. And some of you are bloodied, and you're beat up, and you're bruised, and and the enemy keeps pounding on you. And instead of continuing to fight, instead of continuing to continue on with the power of God, it's so much easier to tap out. And some of you are tempted by that this morning. Tempted to quit. It's in those moments, it's in the moments that we've read about, that we have two choices. When life is hard and when life hurts, we can pursue one of two things. Number one, our own survival. Our own survival. When trouble comes, we get this bunker mentality that it's all about us. It's all about we've got to somehow make sure our comfort is taken care of. We've got to somehow make sure we keep the bad suffering out. When Amanda had gotten diagnosed with cancer, that was my initial thing. I've got to rally the wagons, if you will. Round them up. I've got to protect. I've got to make sure this evil thing has happened in my life, and I've got to, as a good dad and as a good husband, I am going to be the protector of this, as if I can somehow stop cancer from being inflicted upon my wife. But some of us do that, right? We want to keep, and so what we do is life is a survival game, and we're trying to figure out like it's the ultimate Oregon Trail game, right? That we make sure that we go along every step of the way. We always make sure that the enemy is not around, disease isn't around, uh, trouble isn't around, and we ward ourselves off from the world so that we know we can live a life of comfort. That's not the life that God's called us to. Listen, God did not give you custodial rights over your survival. He didn't. In fact, God says your life is in the palm of his hand. And so we need to relinquish our survival mechanism and we need to pursue the Savior. The Savior who suffered. The Savior who endured, the Savior who was ridiculed, the Savior who was mocked, the Savior who was tortured, the Savior who said that we too will experience many of these things. And until we do, American Christian, we should be all the more confident and all the more bold and all the more opportunistic to share the good news of Jesus Christ because we don't have to worry about that stuff. We don't have to worry about being tortured. We don't have to worry about being sawn into. We don't have to worry about being flogged. All we have to worry about is maybe some laughter and mockery. Maybe a loss of a job. Maybe. It's time for us to stop trying to survive and do what our Jesus did. Seek and save the lost. But we got to stick our necks out we got to be willing to take a risk. 
Notice, finally, we need to realize that trusting God and His Word is the key. Look at the text. How were they able to endure such difficulty, such horror? How were they able to stand amidst great opposition and even the most difficult of trials? They did so doing two things. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I will steal next week's thunder. But, but I got to close out this sermon, right? Number one, they left the world behind. You can do her a lot when you know that this is not what God intended. This isn't the ball game. This is pre-game. This is pre-season. So what is 70 years of comfort? What is 70 years of trials in light of eternity? We've got a whole eternity ahead of us, folks. A whole eternity where we will rule and reign with Christ. That's why Peter says these light and momentary trials don't compare to the glory that will be found in Christ Jesus. And so whatever we endure, whatever's going on here, make it temporal because the eternal is coming. And that's what we need to look to what is to come. No eye has seen, the Bible says. No ear has heard what God has prepared for His people. These people endured knowing that absent from the body, they're present with the Lord. Knowing, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, whether we live or whether we die, it's okay, we're with God. We're with God. And so as Christians who are going to go out into a new day, in a new week, without having to worry about a lot of these things, we need to let go of this world a little bit. Loosen our grasp. And we need to start living in light of the eternity that is to come. This greatest generation got it right. They recognized Jesus. They recognized God was right that this world would cause us trouble. So they lived by faith. And they lived with eternity on their hearts. And they lived with full confidence, as we are called to do, to live with full confidence that our Savior and Lord has overcome the world and destroyed the powers of hell and death and Satan. And because of that, because of that, you and I have been made more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Amen? So let's go live that way. And let's be bold and let's be confident knowing that whether we live or we die, we have Christ on our side and that is more than enough.